0: Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at Nipt law. slash law Rivera, J. The sole issue on this appeal is whether the trial court's denial of defendant J.L.'s request for a jury instruction on voluntary possession, in connection with a third-degree criminal possession of a weapon count, constitutes reversible error. We conclude that the evidence supported the jury charge and the error warrants a new trial on this count. Defendant was tried on charges of criminal possession of a weapon and unlawful possession of marijuana. Defendant was 17 years old when he was arrested, and, if his version of the underlying events is believed, although he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, he was not in possession of a weapon. According to the prosecution, defendant was criminally liable for constructive possession of a gun because he had dominion and control over the bedroom where the gun was found. Defendant maintains that he did not live in the apartment and was a temporary guest with no prior knowledge of the gun and that he discovered it unintentionally in the moments after he was shot before leaving to get assistance in the prosecutor's case in chief the two police officers who responded to an emergency call testified that they found defendant sitting outside of a residential building bleeding from the back of his neck defendant told the officers that he had been shot while he was in the kitchen of the building's basement apartment during a search of the apartment one of the officers followed a trail of blood into a back bedroom where he saw pools of blood on the floor, a bucket of plaster, garbage bags, a mattress with a foam topper and blanket, and some dressers. The officer found a Military Armament Corporation Model 11 submachine gun, Mach 11, in an open drawer, as well as three small bags of marijuana on top of another dresser. The officer further testified that the Mach 11 was under a piece of paper. A photograph admitted into evidence showed the gun on top of an envelope which was addressed to defendant at a different location and had the words, important insurance documents enclosed, printed on it. Although the officer did not remember if the envelope was in the drawer when he found the gun, another officer who arrived three hours later said that he saw the envelope under the gun and that the gun appeared to have blood on it. The officer who first found the Mac 11 also searched a second bedroom where he saw a fully made bed, some clothing, a dresser, bottles of alcohol, a child's photograph, and a Bible. In an open dresser drawer, the officer found an unloaded revolver, money, and an envelope. When he searched the kitchen, he saw a refrigerator and a window covered with bullet holes, a loaded gun in an open drawer, a marijuana cigarette, and loose marijuana on the floor amid broken glass. Two police officers interviewed Defendant in the hospital emergency room later that night. According to one of the officers, Defendant provided an incorrect name and birthdate and said he lived with his aunt and was shot outside of her home. However, Defendant later told this officer that he had paid $100 to someone named Paul, whom he had recently met, to stay in an extra room in Paul's home. Defendant was in the kitchen of Paul's apartment when he heard the gunshots. He ran to the back bedroom when he discovered that he had been shot and then ran upstairs to ask a neighbor to call 911. He did not know who shot him. The prosecutor did not present any evidence as to who was renting or living in the apartment or whether the police had made any efforts to locate Paul. Nor was there evidence disputing defendant's statements to the police that he lived with his aunt. No fingerprints were recovered from any of the weapons but a criminalist testified that she determined defendant was one of at least 2 people who contributed DNA to samples taken from the Mac-11 however she could not say where defendant's DNA was found on the gun or when or how it had gotten there she also testified that there was no way to determine the exact source of DNA and that although she did not specifically test for the presence of blood on the Mac-11 it was possible that defendant's blood dripped onto the gun or that the DNA was transferred there by a third party the officer who collected the DNA samples testified that he did not remember seeing blood on any of the guns. Defendant took the stand in his defense. He testified that he was randomly shot in the neck and chest while sitting in the kitchen of the basement apartment where he was planning to spend the night after his aunt put him out of her home for fighting with his brother. While he was in the kitchen smoking marijuana with Paul, defendant heard three gunshots. When he realized that he had been shot in the neck and was bleeding, he ran to the back bedroom where he would be staying to look for a towel. It was his first time in the room and, in an open drawer, he saw what he later told the police appeared to be a gun but denied picking it up. After he found a towel on top of the dresser, he went upstairs and told a neighbor to call 911. Defendant was sitting outside on the building steps when the police arrived. In response to their questioning, defendant explained that he had been shot in the kitchen by someone in the alleyway outside. He controverted the police testimony and denied having given a false name and birth date at the hospital. Defendant further explained for the jury that because he had an appointment regarding an insurance matter the following day, the only thing he brought to the apartment was an envelope with the materials for the meeting and that he placed the envelope on top of the refrigerator, not in the dresser. Defendant also presented testimony from another officer who said that he found defendant at the building holding a towel around his bleeding neck and that defendant told him he had been shot while sitting in the kitchen by someone in the alleyway outside. When this officer went into the back bedroom, he saw blood on the gun in the dresser drawer but did not see marijuana. Based on the trial evidence, defendant requested that the court charge the jury on voluntary possession of the gun as follows. Under our law, possession of the Mac 11, to be criminal must be voluntary possession of an Mac 11. It is voluntary when the possessor was aware of his or her physical possession or control of the MAC-11 for a sufficient period to have been able to terminate the possession. The prosecutor objected, arguing that if the jury believed defendant's testimony, there was no way for it to find that he physically or constructively possessed the firearm at all, thereby making voluntariness irrelevant. Contrary to the dissent's mischaracterization of the record descending up at 6 the court readily recognized defense counsel's point in seeking the instruction and actually clarified for the prosecutor that defendant's testimony was that he didn't have the firearm long enough to be considered a voluntary possession and that if the jury were to take defendant's testimony and be convinced by it or allow it to create reasonable doubt then they can't find that he possessed it knowingly and unlawfully Further, it noted that the proposed instruction came right out of the definition section of culpability in the penal law. However, the court believed that the voluntary possession instruction was more confusing than helpful, and therefore denied the requested charge. As to possession, the court instructed the jury as follows. Possess means to have physical possession or otherwise to exercise dominion or control over tangible property. A person possesses property in either of two ways. First, a person may have physical possession of it by holding it in his hand or by carrying it on his person or body. Second, a person may exercise dominion, which really is another word for control. Right, dominion or control over property not in his physical possession. A person who exercises such dominion or control over property not in his physical possession is said to have that property in his constructive possession. Under our law, a person has tangible property in his constructive possession when that person exercises a level of control over the area in which the property is found, or over the person from whom the property is seized, sufficient to give him the ability to use or dispose of that property. The court also explained that. Part of this count is that a person knowingly possess a firearm when that person is aware that he is in possession of the firearm. The question naturally arises how to determine whether a person had the knowledge, that is, the awareness, required for the commission of a crime, and in this case, required for knowing possession of this firearm. To make that determination, you must decide if the required knowledge can be inferred beyond a reasonable doubt from the proven facts. In doing so, you may consider the person's conduct and all of the circumstances surrounding that conduct, including but not limited to what, if anything, that person did and said. Further, an act of possession of property by a person permits the inference that such person knows what he possesses. Thus, if you find beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was, in fact, in possession of this exhibit, the firearm that has been described as the Mach 11, then you may, but you are sick don't have to, infer from that fact that he knew that he possessed that exhibit, the Mach 11. In summation, Defense counsel urged the jury to consider the meaning of knowing possession with intent and voluntary counsel did not specifically argue that defendant had not voluntarily possessed the MAC-11. In turn, the prosecutor told the jury that defendant had knowingly possessed the firearm and had the ability to either use it or dispose of it. During deliberations, the jury requested and the court provided further instructions and written copies of the definitions of possession knowingly, and intent. Those instructions essentially repeated, without expounding upon, the instructions as originally charged. The jury acquitted defendant of fourth-degree criminal possession of the loaded firearm found in the kitchen and second-degree criminal possession of the Mach 11 with the intent to use it unlawfully against another but convicted him of third-degree possession of the Mach 11 and unlawful possession of marijuana. The court rejected defendant's application for youthful offender status and sentenced defendant to three years incarceration and three years post-release supervision on the weapons possession conviction and imposed a $25 fine for the marijuana conviction. The appellate division modified and, as so modified, affirmed and remitted the matter to Supreme Court for a new determination of defendant's application for youthful offender status and resentencing people VJL. The court summarily rejected defendant's challenge to the jury instructions, id. At 524, a judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. Defendant limits his appeal to challenging his conviction of third-degree possession of a weapon. He argues that the trial court erroneously denied his request to instruct the jury on voluntary possession because there was a reasonable view of the evidence that, to the extent he possessed the weapon at all, such possession was not voluntary. Defendant contends that the error warrants a new trial on this count. Defendant is correct on both points. A trial court must instruct the jury on, the material legal principles applicable to the particular case, and, so far as practicable, explain the application of the law to the facts, Corporal 300.102. The charge, must be tailored to the facts of the particular case. People v. Baskerville, including instructing the jury on expanded statutory definitions when necessary People v. Medina. In determining whether to issue a particular instruction, the court must view the evidence adduced at trial in the light most favorable to the defendant People v. Zona. The charge must be given if there is evidence reasonably supportive of the defense, even if there is other evidence which, if credited, would negate it People v. McKenzie. A jury charge that ignores the factual contentions of either the prosecution or defense cannot be countenanced, People v. Bell. After considering the record, most favorably to defendant, our task is to determine whether the trial court's charge to the jury was adequate, Paget. If, on any reasonable view of the evidence, the fact finder might have decided, in defendant's favor had it heard the requested charge, the failure to charge constitutes reversible error. Only when there is no reasonable view of the evidence that would support a finding of the tendered defense is the court relieved of its obligation to submit the question to the jury people v Watts. Put another way if there is a reasonable view of the evidence that supports the defense regardless of evidence to the contrary the court is without discretion to deny the charge and error in this regard requires reversal and a new trial. Here, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to defendant, as we must, evidence admitted at trial supports defendants' requested charge on voluntary possession. Third-degree criminal possession of a weapon must be knowing and voluntary. Penal Law Section 265.02. See also People v. Saunders. The corpus delicti of weapons possession. Is the voluntary, aware act of the possession of a weapon, People v. Purse, of course, the possession of a weapon which is meant as a knowing and voluntary one. The charge given to the jury, when read in its totality, was inadequate because it failed to explain that the jury must return a verdict of not guilty if it found defendant knowingly possessed the gun, albeit for an insufficient period of time to terminate the possession. In other words, if the jury found that defendant's possession, physical or constructive, was so fleeting that he did not have time to affirmatively end the possession then the possession was involuntary while the court defined possession that is knowing it did not define possession that is voluntary rather to communicate the element of voluntariness the court relied on its explanations of constructive possession of the area where the gun was found and the requirement that defendant had knowing possession i.e. an awareness of the gun but the charge on constructive possession and awareness did not address the temporal aspect of voluntary possession As the court itself explained, defendant requested the charge to allow the jury to find that he did not have the gun in his possession for the requisite period of time, that is, long enough to be considered a voluntary possession. Defendant correctly argues that the trial evidence was reasonably supportive of the view that even if he had knowing and constructive possession of the MAC-11, such possession was not voluntary. A reasonable juror could have found that defendant, then a 17 year old, was shot in the neck while in someone else's home, and, in the frantic moments afterwards, while searching for a towel to staunch the bleeding, came close enough to the drawer to both see an object that he thought looked like a gun inside it, and to transfer his DNA to the weapon by bleeding on it, even though he may never have touched it. Viewed in the light most favorable to defendant, this evidence supports a finding that he had constructive possession of the Mach 11 by virtue of his access to and control over the room where it was found, and that this possession was knowing once he became aware of the presence of the gun, but also that his possession was not voluntary, given that it lasted for only the brief period between when he ran into the bedroom and saw the gun in the dresser and when he left the bedroom. That defendant's primary defense may have been that he lacked constructive possession altogether because he did not have sufficient dominion and control over the bedroom in the first instance does not alter our conclusion that defendant was entitled to the voluntariness charge. Furthermore, there is no support for the prosecution's suggestion that a defendant's concession of knowing constructive possession is a prerequisite for a jury instruction regarding involuntary possession McKenzie. The existence of evidence that appeared inconsistent with the asserted defense of involuntary possession does not lead to a different result, as the court explained in People v. Butts. Inconsistency in claim defenses, or even between a defendant's testimony and a defense, should not deprive the defendant of the requested charge if the charge would otherwise be warranted by the evidence. Quoting Paget, see also Mackenzie. The charge must be given if there is evidence reasonably supportive of the defense. Even if there is other evidence which, if credited, would negate it, the rule serves as a bulwark against judicial intrusion into the fact-finding province of the jury. Nevertheless, the prosecution's argument, seized upon by the dissent descending up at eight to nine, that defendant's story is contradicted by the evidence, as an invitation for us to assess the relative strength of the evidence adduced at trial which, of course, we cannot do, see McKenzie, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, is an exercise understood to be incompatible with weighing the evidence to resolve competing inferences, buts. Nor did the court's instruction to the jury expanding on the definitions of, constructive, and, knowing, possession remedy the court's failure to give the voluntariness charge. The charges given simply explained that the defendant could be found guilty if the jury determined that he had control over the area in which the contraband was found rather than physically possessing the weapon. The charge thus failed to explain that the jury could consider whether defendant had sufficient time to dispose of the gun once he became aware of its presence in the area that he purportedly controlled. The jury was not instructed that it could find that defendant's awareness of his possession was fleeting. Because, for instance, defendant only learned of the gun's presence when he first ran into the bedroom to get a towel to stop the bleeding from his gunshot wound, and because any potential control lasted for only a few moments until he ran upstairs to ask the neighbor to call 911. And, of course, the constructive possession charges focus on defendant's level of control over the area, in which the contraband was found as utterly silent on the temporal aspect of voluntary possession. The distinction among constructive, knowing, and voluntary possession that defendant emphasizes is reflected in the Criminal Jury Instructions model charge on voluntary possession, which provides that possession is voluntary when the possessor was aware of their physical possession or control for a sufficient period to have been able to terminate the possession. CJI 2D NY Voluntary Possession Section 15.002. As the court has emphasized, the model charges contain the preferred phrasing of legal instructions People v. Cubino. See also Stephen W. Fisher. Pattern instruction for jurors in criminal cases seek to explain fundamental legal principles. The Committee on Criminal Jury Instructions continues to have as its principal objective the production of jury charges that correctly and concisely state the law in a way that lay jurors can understand. Little is more important to the success of our criminal justice system. It makes little sense to convey the important legal principle of voluntary possession by implication alone, while declining to provide a pattern jury instruction that addresses it explicitly. In any case, the trial court denied the charge here, not because the requested charge lacked evidentiary support, but because the court considered the proposed language more confusing than helpful. This determination was in error because the requested charge did not inject confusion into the instructions. Rather, it addressed an entirely different aspect of the charged possessory crime—the temporal requirement of voluntary possession. Indeed, the requested charge would have clarified the law because the charge, as erroneously given, allowed the jury to conclude that if defendant had control over the area where the gun was found, i.e., the bedroom, then he had constructive possession of the gun, regardless of how long he was actually aware of its presence. This is not an accurate statement of the relevant law where as here there is a reasonable view of the evidence that the possession may not have been voluntary notably the jury acquitted defendant of criminal possession of the other firearms in the apartment which he testified he had no knowledge of suggesting that the jury at least partially credited his testimony with respect to the mac 11 however defendant testified that he had some awareness of it enough to sketch a drawing of it for the police In the absence of an instruction explaining that this awareness had to last for a sufficient amount of time for possession to be voluntary, the jury could very well have assumed that defendant's fleeting knowledge alone was enough to find that he constructively possessed the firearm. Moreover, the jury's confusion concerning the concept of possession is evident from its own messages to the court during deliberations. Medina, when the jurors requested additional instructions on and written copies of, the definitions of, possession, and, knowingly. Ultimately, here, the instruction, s, did not adequately convey the meaning of possession to the jury and instead created a great likelihood of confusion such that the degree of precision required for a jury charge was not met. Therefore, we have no difficulty concluding that the denial of the charge on voluntary possession constitutes reversible error warranting a new trial. As a matter of first principle, unless the proof of the defendant's guilt, without reference to the error, is overwhelming, there is no occasion for consideration of any doctrine of harmless error, People v. Crimmins, People v. Marina, under our traditional harmless error analysis, an appellate court does not reach the question of prejudice unless the evidence is overwhelming in the first instance. The evidence here is not overwhelming. As the record demonstrates, the officer's testimony corroborated much of defendant's testimony of the event. There was no dispute that he was inside the apartment when he was shot and then went into the bedroom where the officers later discovered the Mac 11. Defendant's fingerprints were not on that gun or any other weapon in the apartment, and the criminalist testified that she could not say when or how defendant's DNA got on the gun, and she conceded that the DNA transfer could have occurred without defendant touching the gun. At least one officer testified that he saw blood on the gun. This evidence supported the view that defendants' blood may have dripped on the gun as he was looking for a towel. Defendants' age at the time of the shooting, evidence that he was smoking marijuana and suffered a serious gunshot wound moments before running into the bedroom, and that he was interviewed at the hospital while undergoing treatment were all factors that a jury could rely on to explain minor inconsistencies in his statements, rather than confirming his consciousness of guilt. Moreover, the prosecution presented no evidence that defendant lived at the apartment or that he was the sole tenant. The envelope found in the bedroom was addressed to defendant at a different Brooklyn address, supporting his claim that he did not reside in the apartment and that his stay at the apartment with Paul would be short-lived. That interpretation of the facts was also supported by the officer's testimony that the bedroom with the Mac 11, where defendant ran while looking for a towel and where he said he would have slept that night appeared unlived in perhaps even under construction and contained no evidence of a permanent tenant in stark contrast to the other bedroom where officers found a fully made bed and personal possessions in sum a reasonable juror could have credited defendant's testimony and concluded that he had constructive knowing but not voluntary possession of the gun in question for a brief moment thus the jury should have been instructed regarding the definition of voluntary possession and the failure to so charge was not harmless. Accordingly, the appellate division order insofar as appealed from should be reversed and a new trial ordered on the count of criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree. Order insofar as appealed from reversed and a new trial ordered on the count of criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree. Opinion by Judge Rivera. Judges Stein, Fahey and Wilson concur. Chief Judge DiFiori dissents and votes to affirm in an opinion in which Judges Garcia and Feynman concur. Decided December 17, 2020. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors' Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law www.nypti.org slash law